Welcome to the 460th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome medical anthropologist Christos Linteris back to COVID Calls for a return visit. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, but please don't wait too long. We'll be wrapping up the regular daily COVID calls on March 16th and moving just to weekly COVID calls after that. So please let me hear from you soon. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is a doting family man. He was a long-standing fixture at his hospital. This is the obituary of David Ferranti, who died at age 60. He was a hospital equipment coordinator and worked in St. Elizabeth's Medical Center in Brighton, Massachusetts. He died May 2nd, 2020 of COVID-19. David Ferranti was committed to his two families, both at home and at work. In his job on the engineering unit, he was really part of every team in the hospital, wrote St. Elizabeth's president, Henry Bain, in a note to employees. Harry Bain, in a note to employees. He was always worried about his nurses and his departments having what they needed for the best care for our patients. Ferranti worked at the hospital for almost 42 years, and he loved every day of it, said his father, Savino Ferranti. St. Elizabeth was treating many COVID-19 patients when David became infected with the virus, his father said, but it was impossible to say where he caught it. St. Elizabeth had no further comment about his case at the time that this was written. Ferranti was a family man and the greatest son you can imagine, his father said. He had a wife, Susan, and a son, John. Ferranti worked in his garden and enjoyed walks in nature. He was a history buff. He was born in Wiesbaden, Germany. His father, a descendant of Italian immigrants, served in the military there where he met David's mother, Renate. For his family, tragedy hit twice within weeks. David's aunt, Anne Ferranti, died of the disease a few weeks before David. The advice David would have given to anyone, said his father, is to stay safe, whatever it takes. The life of David Ferranti has appeared in Kaiser Health News, published June 5th, 2020, and it was written by Katja Ritterbush. I'm going to read a second one from this collection in the Lost from the Frontlines section of Kaiser Health News. Headline is, A Nurse for Whom Family Was Everything and Patients Were Like Family. This is the life of Kelly Mazzarella, who died at age 43. She was a clinical nurse manager at Montefiore Mount Vernon Hospital in Mount Vernon, New York. She died May 8, 2020 from COVID-19. Even as a girl, Kelly Mattarella had her sights set on helping others. She turned this innate altruism into a 16-year career at a community-based teaching hospital. Karen Jedlika was blown away by the care her big sister showed every patient. People would be going through the worst things in their lives, and she was just there for them, Jalika said. Mazzarella showed that same compassion with her husband, Ronnie, 
and daughters Haley and Christina. She never missed an opportunity to tell her daughters how proud they made her, Jedlika said. In July of 2019, mozzarella was diagnosed with lupus, an autoimmune disease that brought on painful bouts of swelling. She worked on and off through March, helping with the influx of COVID patients. She was diagnosed on April 2nd, 2020, and died five weeks later. Paul Marski, a lifelong friend, organized a GoFundMe for the family. It had such a love and a light that emanated from her, Jedlika said. It's very comforting to know everybody felt the same way that we did. The life of Kelly Mazzarella, who died at age 43 in May of 2020 from COVID-19. This was written by Susanna Cavanaugh, published June 5th, 2020 in Kaiser Health News. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and I'm really excited to bring Christos Linteris back to COVID Calls. He's a medical anthropologist and a senior lecturer at the University of St. Andrews in the UK. His research focuses on the anthropological and historical examination of epidemics, zoonosis, epidemiological epistemology, medical visual culture, colonial medicine, and epidemics as events posing an existential risk to humanity. He has a new project, which will be ongoing until 2024, titled The Global War Against the Rat and the Epistemic Emergence of Zoonosis, which looks at the global history of a foundational but historically neglected process in the development of scientific approaches of zoonosis, the global war against the rat, which took place in 1898 to 1948. And you can keep up with his many other, that and other projects by following on Twitter at Visual Plague. And he's been writing many other things at this time as well, which we'll talk about. Christos Linteris, it's a pleasure to bring you back to COVID Calls. Thanks for coming. It's a great pleasure to be back, Scott, although it is, of course, not a pleasure that the pandemic continues uh, uh, since our last talk, which was, uh, I can't remember the exact date, but it was two years ago. It was. I went back and, and looked. Um, we talked, uh, and Graham Mooney was on as well in that conversation, uh, another great scholar. And um, we talked on September 8th, 2020. And um, the the numbers, I didn't read the death totals uh, for today, um, but at that time in the United States, 189,456 people had died. And it's now, uh, the, the total in the U.S. is nearing a million, isn't it? It's over 960,000. What, what is it looking like in the U.K. where you are? Well, the... The, I think the scientifically agreed number of the total deaths up until now is 180,000. And, um, well, since uh, down in England they lifted all measures at the beginning of uh, February, we now have a clear pattern where hospitalizations are in a very sharp rise again, uh, which will be made even worse, of course, uh, at the end of this month when uh, self-isolation will no longer be uh, mandatory, which is an unbelievable step of, uh, how can we call it, epidemiological nihilism, I think is the only way to put mm. this. Yes. So that means if you have a confirmed COVID case, there's no requirement for any sort of isolation at all? Not at all. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. 
Now, we were chatting a bit before we started. I mean, it's it's not just there. I mean, South Korea has taken this pandemic as seriously as you could imagine any country doing. I mean, I moved here from the United States a year ago. It was two different worlds. People wear masks indoors and outdoors. They're very respectful of one another. They keep distance. Vaccination rate is 87%, even though they were very slow to get the vaccines. And yet, at the same time, I went to the shopping mall the other day. They had had very stringent door controls, temperature checks, everything. And on the day that they set the record up to that point of Omicron infection numbers, it was all gone. They took it away. So the control mechanisms are moving one direction down and the infection rate is going the other direction. I don't understand. It's a cognitive dissonance that's left me a misunderstanding or the lack of understanding. Yes, and you have countries which have been very consistent in having very good COVID control measures, such as France, with COVID passes and masks. And I, I know you like the, the story of the day in, in the program, so I'll give you one. Uh, I was in France for, for three weeks doing archival research in colonial archives about the plague and rats. And in, in Nantes, uh, where the uh, diplomatic archives are held, uh, mainly of the French protectorates, of uh, of the time of the colonial times, uh, there is a there is a great cinema called Catorza, a famous art cinema, and it had a an Italian a film festival, and on a Sunday, uh, the twenty seventh of February, they held a matinee at eleven o'clock uh, in honor of Monica Vitti, the Italian actress uh, who recently died. So they were showing uh, La Ventura by. Uh, Michelangelo Antonioni's incredible film. And uh, this being France, of course, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, the cinema was absolutely packed. You know, this was <laughs> the big hall. And it was, I mean, totally packed with families and children, friends, yeah. groups of people. It was un- unbelievably full. Uh, but everyone was wearing a mask, and not just any mask, surgical mask upwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, not none of the cloth ones, and you needed a vaccination pass. So, you know, it felt really, really comfortable, really, really safe. And yet the following day, on the 28th of, of, uh, of, of February, uh, France lifted the mask, mask mandate in cinemas, and it will soon lift the vaccination mandate as well. Uh, why? Well, the, I think... Let's be realistic. The answer is very clear because there are presidential elections coming. So mm. it's, you know, it's as cynical and as sad as that. I, I can totally picture that moment. And it actually makes me think of a, a piece. I didn't know if we were going to find time to talk about it. But since you raised it, you published a piece in Somatosphere, July 29th, 2021. I have a theory that you don't sleep or maybe you write in your sleep. I don't know. But you're an awfully good writer for writing in your sleep. Uh, the piece is called The Social Potential of Continuing to Wear Masks. And I just want to read a, a, just the, t- the last part of it. You say, in, in spite of their detractors a year and a half into the pandemic, masks are proving quite good at helping people everywhere around the world to speak truth to power, uphold public health standards and protect and care for one another, often against the callous and market-oriented grain of pandemic response policy or the lack of it. So people in the theater, they're enjoying their life, but they're signaling something. I mean, to you, is that a, is a political act almost? 
Well, from now on, it is. It is a, mm. an act of resistance against epidemiological nihilism to wear a mask. And especially so because you are confronted already in, 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 in France. Uh, I, I haven't experienced this in Scotland because there is still a mask mandate. But in France, from the 28th of February, when mask mandates were lifted in several places, including restaurants, you, you know, I was confronted by, by people like in the restaurant uh, uh, saying, well, you don't need to wear a mask anymore. And I saw other people being confronted as well. And, you know, most people stood their ground and they said, well, I, you know, I don't care what the law is. You know, what I care for is to protect myself and others. You know, it's just common sense that in the midst of a, a pandemic, which now has a new sub-variant of Omicron, you know, which is uh, much more infectious, etc., will continue to wear a mask. You know, um, it, it doesn't matter if there is a mandate. You know, this is my social responsibility. This is my solidarity. This is my sociality, if you, if you, if you like, in anthropological terms. And I'm very surprised, you know, when that somatosphere piece was uh, published and, and the uh, to give you the context, the, the, what made me write this was that I, I had uh, visited a, a kind of a, a square market, uh, a farmer's market in a, in a very nice uh, town in the, in the highlands. And, well, mask mandates are not, uh, do not exist for outdoor spaces or did not exist in, uh, I don't think they ever existed in, in Scotland. Definitely they weren't uh, <clears throat> in place in, at that time. But everyone was wearing a mask. And I, I said, well, this is so wonderful. You know, when everyone is telling us, throw the masks, that all these people are wearing masks in an open space. Now, I was really surprised. I mean, I, we know Twitter is a horrible, horrible space in many ways. I mean, it can be very toxic. Um, the, of the attacks I got about, you know, in, with regards to this article, um, mm. uh, people calling me, at, uh, I can't remember now the exact phrase, something like a a, a techno-fascist, you know, that I'm endorsing kind of a, a technological totalitarianism, you know, which is, I think is really, really weird coming, especially uh, uh, from people, you know, from, from the left, yeah. uh, because, you know, surely the mask is one of the most democratic devices, you know, in the context of any pandemic. If anything, the problem is that, you know, in, in my opinion, once we had a clear image that this was a contagious pathogen, and we already knew that by January, the end of January 2020, governments should have made sure that there was a constant production of excellent quality masks made freely available to everyone. You know, that would be the socialization of epidemic control, if you like, socializing mm -hmm. epidemic control. You know, it's not that wearing masks is the lack of free masks, excellent free masks for everyone, which is the problem. Uh, at least in the way that I understand uh, how democracies should work and uh, what it is to have a, a left-wing agenda in a, in a pandemic. They did this, you know, here in South Korea, of course, there was a recent tradition of wearing masks. Um, and it's, I mean, maybe you can attribute it in part to a recent outbreak of the uh, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, for example, but mostly it's about the seasonal um, dust storms and, and it's about, you know, pollution. 
more generally, and people got mask rations early in the pandemic, and there's a high level of knowledge here about the different grades and types. I mean, I went on today onto the Coupang, which is a sort of a Korean um, Amazon equivalent, and they're available. They're, you've got to pay for them now, but they're they're readily available, cheap, and the highest quality ones you could possibly imagine. And, I, and so I, I say that because there's just there's no there's no cultural advantage here at all to making some sort of a stand on the mask, or if there is, it's so deeply subcultural, it just doesn't rise to the, to the surface, maybe in some occupations or in some neighborhoods, I don't know, but it's just, it doesn't rise to the surface. And I'm surprised, you know, so it, it tells me again, yet again, that this pandemic is playing out in so many different ways around the world, but pre-existing cultural ideas in this case around wearing a mask um, had a lot to do with how people were gonna politicize some parts and not others. Yes, well, uh, David Napier, who is a medical anthropologist at, at the UCL, uh, published uh, a really interesting article in uh, Le Monde Diplomatique uh, last week, where where he says, and it's really, uh, you know, provocative as a statement, but I really like it. He said that pandemics are social phenomena with biological impact, you know, not the other way around. You know, and, and mm -hmm. that is absolutely true. An infection is a biological phenomenon, but a pandemic is a social phenomenon with a biological impact. You know, and, and, and the trouble with every single government across the globe is that they have failed to understand this, which is not surprising at all, of course, because society does not exist in their ideology, right? In the neoliberal ideology, there is no such thing as society, as Margaret Thatcher said, there are only individuals and families. People, yeah. So to admit that there is society, that there are communities, you know, is, is something that neoliberalism cannot accept. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it is the main threat to its very existence. So it's not surprising that the social aspect of the pandemic has not been accounted for. The behavioral aspect, the individual aspect, has because that's something they accept, but not the social. That's why we we have no no anthropologists in most government panels. We have no sociologists, right? We have no historians as well. Uh, nothing to understand there, right? Nothing of any value to, in in theory, at least, to to shape public health policy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Christos Linteris. I want to linger on this just one more second because um, it also connects to another piece uh, that you published in the pandemic. And this one was published December 15th, 2020 in Cultural Anthropology. Title is Emptiness and COVID-19 Cartography. Um, I'm working backwards from how I thought we were going to talk in this in this discussion today, but we're going to get everything in, I promise. But this piece is also pretty extraordinary because you, you noted some interesting patterns, visual representations of the impact of the pandemic and, uh, and absence and absences. And I, I want to talk about that. But there's a point you make in there, which I think connects to our riff on masks, which is a, a sort of a sinophobia, a, a sort of a long-standing anti-Asian, anti-Chinese bias in the West. And I think that also informs the way that masks have been, have been discussed, like inappropriately attributed to this, this is, and this is in Western media, it's something that Asians do as if Asia is a, a place. And if there's a, an Asian behavior that somehow it's mask wearing 
which in theory is somehow mm, docile, accepting of authoritarianism, many, many other racist sort of xenophobic things. Can you talk, let's talk a little bit about that piece and, and what you saw and then how that connects to, to the mask kind of issue. Sure. <laughs> yes, uh, so that piece was about these satellite images of China during the first lockdown, China's uh, first lockdown uh, in February. Uh, well, January, February 2020, and how the pollution over, well, north, well, central and north China uh, had um, supposedly disappeared because of the lockdown. And it was this before-after kind of image of, uh, of a sky full of pollution and then a sky free from pollution. And it immediately, it, it, it sounds kind of maybe silly because the immediate... Um, comparison is not very clear, but it, it reminded me of something that uh, Ari Heinrich and other historians have, um, have uh, talked about uh, in relation to colonial medicine in China. And this is about uh, how at the end of the 19th century, there was this uh, massive uh, production of both portraits and photographs of uh, people with fibromas, uh, kind of big uh, tumors, external tumors, and their removal by missionary doctors in the south of China. And how this pattern of before-after emerged, you know, the work of the colonial uh, missionary doctor being to cure the Chinese of something they were unable to cure themselves because they were supposedly backward, etc. Now, what is very interesting in these photographs, as uh, Ari Henrich has uh, ar argued, is that together with the tumor, what is missing in the after uh, image, the, the healed image, is the cue, you know, the Manchu cue. So they've cut the cue. So they have de-signified uh, the patient, um, uh, freeing him or him, because it's uh, the cue is a male trait, of uh, being uh, backward or uh, uh, whatever the, the colonial missionaries saw the Chinese as being. Right. Now, <clears throat> I think this is, uh, uh, throughout this pandemic, we've seen uh, once again, like we saw during SARS in 2003, uh, a, a huge, horrific wave of xenophobia. But what I have argued in, in another paper, um, it's a chapter in a volume uh, edited by Frank Biele uh, and Soren Urbanski on mm -hmm. yellow pairings. Uh, it is, there is a, a danger there in comparing the way in which xenophobia and the fear of epidemics were uh, connected under xenophobic uh, narratives in the West during, say, the Third Plague pandemic or at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, and in the 21st century. Of course, there are many similarities, but there is one key difference, I think, and this is their political ontology. So back in the 19th century, when we have the third plague pandemic, which spreads across the globe, and the Chinese are accused as being, well, first of all, the Chinese accused as being the origin, not in the, uh, say, uh, the phylogenetic sense, but in a cultural sense, is what right. produces uh, plague. And then uh, Chinese immigrants uh, are accused of spreading it and harboring it in Chinatowns across the globe. Now, this... Um, uh, this uh, forging together of uh, uh, xenophobia and a fear of epidemics relies on a, on a perception of China at the time 
as an empire that is in decay. After the Opium Wars, uh, the Qing Empire is seen as uh, kind of uh, sick, as, uh, uh, as both an empire and a civilization which is decaying and mm. a race in this racist uh, colonial narrative which is degenerating. And it is this decay and degeneration which is seen as reviving an ancient enemy that is plague, which has no place in the modern world, but it is a symptom of this decay and degeneration of mm. China and the Chinese in the colonial imaginary. Now, by contrast, in SARS and in COVID, we have again a forging together of xenophobia and the fear of epidemics or pandemics. But the political ontology is very different because the way in which the West or some people in the West fear China is different. China is no longer feared as a decaying empire. It is feared as an emerging empire, mm -hmm. as an emerging uh, civilization. It's no longer degeneration, but an uncontrollable emergence, which is not following the rules of emerging set by the West. So this is a very different fear. Um, one is an ancient enemy, which is doomed. Both China is doomed in the colonial imagination and plague is doomed ultimately, you know, to be defeated by, you know, the tools of pasteurianism, mm -hmm. vaccines or whatever. Whereas now we have an emerging power, you know, and, an, and emerging viruses, SARS and SARS-2, COVID, you know, which are not doomed at all. You know, an emergence itself is is what is is being feared rather than degeneration. So we have different political ontologies in place, and and we should be very careful here because there is the danger of saying, well, you know, xenophobia as part of our understanding of pandemics is is a relic of the past. It's something we have inherited from colonial times, and it's it's just going to wither away. No, uh, it's not. No, you know, we're producing. Xenophobia is being reforged, you know, right. with new tools. It acquires new ontologies in new contexts. Right? It's not something which has simply survived in our modern era. It is modern in and of itself. Right? Yeah. Uh, I just want to let me quote a line from this from this piece because you um, you say you're talking about the these maps and you say the NASA map possesses uncanny similarities with the visual genre, with atmospheric pollution appearing like a cancer growth over the body of China in the before image, the after image provides a sensation of relief and blue skies, hope, what is not visualized. You write, with the thousands of people dying as a result of COVID-19 and the millions of lives disrupted by anti-epidemic measures. So, so your point there, is, or sort of connecting the point you were just making, is the, the darkened skies of, of China, which is the that's the smoke of industry. That's the that's the fear. That's the new political ontology. The fear of industrialization moving at a pace um, which is not happening in in the countries of the West anymore. And it has to be it, it has to be removed. Or when you see it removed, it's it's a hopeful image. But somehow you don't the mind doesn't linger on what's happening to the people below. Yes, as, as, a, as a diagram, always diagrams have two, um, like two functions. One is, in, in Greek, one is to, to write, uh, write across or write, uh, write things together. And the other one is to erase, 
you know, this is the, the beauty of this, this term in Greek, that it contains both writing and erasing. Right? Mm. So every diagram is both showing something and erasing or making something invisible. just remind folks that we're talking on COVID calls and I'm talking with Christos Linteris. And uh, Christos, let me go back. I wanted to ask you first about the um, you, what you were doing in France. And um, this is more connected with your big project, the global war against the rat. So you are free a little bit now to get around or you're beginning to get around and reconnect with archival holdings connected with this project? Yes, finally. And we are very lucky that the Wellcome Trust has uh, granted us a year's extension to 2025 because of the delays caused by the pandemic. But now uh, all members of the of the project are uh, uh, on, on, on research, properly speaking. So uh, in, uh, in South Africa, in Brazil, I was in France and I'm leaving for Argentina soon. And um, our PhD student is leaving for Sri Lanka soon. So it's... Uh, yeah, we're we're going we're going to the archives. So uh, in France, I was uh, looking at two different things. One was missionary archives, uh, in an effort to establish um, the the actual history uh, surrounding the the first recorded outbreaks of the third pandemic in Yunnan uh, in the 1870s. Yunnan is a southwestern Chinese province, and it's missionaries that first reported these outbreaks. And um, what I have found is 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 quite uh, fascinating because it it has to do with uh, well both with the question of origins, of course, which is something which really interests me as an anthropologist, but also about tropes, epi- epidemiological tropes. And one of the key tropes emerging out of missionary narratives about the the first outbreaks of plague in Yunnan in the 1870s is the one of the uh, what we may call the staggering rat. Now, this is a trope that may sound obscure, but if you read uh, the first chapter of Camus' uh, Plague, the Plague, the famous novel, you will see this trope appearing twice in the first chapter, which is quite astonishing for, for a piece of literature to have the same image appearing twice. Mm-hmm. So, Now, the, the root of that image, which which involves rats coming out of their holes and doing uh, what uh, Camus calls a pirouette, dancing around themselves, dazed and falling dead in front of humans, um, is something which is born as a trope in the Yunnan plague by missionaries. And uh, my effort as an anthropologist is to show that this has nothing to do with a naturalist observation and has everything to do with an apocalyptic cosmology which is part of their understanding of the world at the time. Actually, the image of the staggering rat is simply a a transposition of a a much older image, the image of the swirling hogs in Boccaccio's Decameron onto rats. Uh, And and the purpose of that is to show that we are at the end of time, 
basically. At the time, Yunnan was undergoing a massive uh, uh, Islamic rebellion known as the Panthei Rebellion. And of course, missionaries were understanding this as being part of the end of the world and together war with epidemic, well, you know, the Christian cosmology, it works really well to foster this idea of the end of time. Hmm. Uh, so the staggering rat is part of this cosmology rather than part of a naturalist observation or naturalist narrative about the epidemic. Although it was then systematically misrecognized as being an actual uh, uh, phenomenon of or part of uh, rat episodics. And then it was very interestingly woven together in other epidemic narratives by doctors for decades on. So, well, that's a, that's a pretty amazing find. And that means that throughout that period, then um, missionaries or anybody else who's paying attention and, and recording um, you know, what's going on during the third plague pandemic, they're looking for animals that are misbehaving. They're looking for animals that are acting in ways that, again, call to mind this sort of uh, apocalyptic uh, sign. Yes, well, there, there there are two interconnected narratives. One is the, the great chain of infection, which is something inherited by Ovid, of course, which uh, sees animals dying one, one after another, mm. you know, uh, kind of... Uh, I don't know, snakes and rats and goats and, and oxen and then humans, that sort of narrative, which again has a very long uh, genealogy going back to Latin uh, uh, and, and Greek literature and epidemics. And then the image of the, of the staggering rat is a paradigmatic of, of nature uh, going crazy, basically. You know, the, the order of things coming undone. Because the rat is seen at the time as, as very secretive. It's an animal that would never come out in the open to appear right. before humans. So it is, again, this is a, a Latin trope, in fact, um, which is being re reworked in the missionary. And this is Catholic, Catholic missionaries, uh, missionary uh, uh, letters and reports uh, from the time. That doesn't mean, of course, that plague is not there. Plague is definitely there. Uh, and, and rats would be probably dying. So there is, of course, an empirical basis to all this, but you know the, the narrative itself of the staggering rat, uh, combined with the great chain of infection, is there to sustain a cosmological uh, uh, narrative. Rather, I have, than a, an I have a question about time. I mean, how long could you infer this from the sources? If, if they believe they're witnessing something which could actually be signaling the end times. How long does the end times take to arrive when these are the sorts of phenomena that you're observing? <laughs> yes, well, that's a great question in terms of, well, for anthropologists of religion more than, than me, I think. Uh, you know, I've written about the end of time in, uh, and, and, and apocalyptic thinking in my book on human extinction. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm still not 100% sure I got that right, the, the questions of temporality. Uh, but I think that this is very flexible, you know, the, okay. uh, how long this, this would take. But I think that, you know, if we, if we try to do a kind of a historical ethnography and join these missionaries in that faraway province of China, and, and we have this massive Muslim rebellion and plague at the same time, you know, this, I think, fits very well their understanding of what at least the beginning of the end of the world would look like. 
Well, let's bring it up to 2020-21 then, and now China um, in Wuhan, it's the uh, it's the concern over the lab leak. Uh, now it's the we've gone from the village to the laboratory, and this idea that um, and because I want to come back to your your question about origins, and I raise this with you because I want to know how your thinking on it has moved since we last talked, but also because I think just this last week, major scientific publications have said, and I think there have been three, peer, none of them through peer review yet, but three papers that have um, basically tried to put the lab leak hypothesis or gain of function hypothesis to rest and say, no, this, the origin of SARS-CoV-2 is actually bats from wet market in Wuhan. So there's two things I want to ask you about. One is, um, the, are you surprised that the that the the fascination with the origin has continued to have so much power and momentum, and then connected with that, um, you know, I want to know maybe some, what you see across that stretch of time from the third plague pandemic to today in China's role in that kind of an inquiry. Yes, well, it's <clears throat> it's very interesting. I think that. Um... Well, we, we, I don't think we can treat the lab leak hypothesis and the Wuhan market hypothesis as equal partners, right? Let me be very clear about this. I, at least I do not, um, you know, the, the lab leak hypothesis is a conspiracy theory and the Wuhan hypothesis is a valid scientific hypothesis that has to be proved or disproved. Um, I don't think the lab leak hypothesis is a, a valid or, a, a, you know, a genuine scientific hypothesis is just a conspiracy theory. You know, I just have to be very clear about this. Uh, but what is interesting, and I don't want to comment on specific papers, especially as they're preprints, so I'm assuming they will be improved uh, as they go through peer review. There are some problems with these papers. Their use of photographs, their uh, use of social science is, is, especially, is very, very problematic. They, they mm -hmm. lack social scientific uh, tools, uh, but hopefully this will be improved uh, and, and in, the, in the publications. And if not, it, it may be discussed in a proper scientific uh, manner, you know, uh, uh, in, in, in letters, in journals, and not over Twitter, <laughs> you know, where a lot of this finds... You don't think this is going to be solved over social media? Come on, Christos, you've got to get with the 21st century, man. But I think that as an anthropologist, well, in my place is not to say, well, their data are correct. Well, I can say, I can talk about the social scientific methods, um, but, you know, it's not up to me to say that, you know, they're analyzing data correctly or not. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a life scientist. What is of interest to me is how these systems, I'm oh, sorry, these two, two hypotheses, the Lablik hypothesis and the, the, the Wuhan uh, wet market hypothesis, throughout this pandemic have maybe, well, not intentionally, of course, uh, but they have as a social fact, um, they have come to form a system of oppositions, a system of dialogue, and a system of what I've elsewhere called an imperative ontology about the origins of this pandemic. And what I mean with imperative ontology is that rather than what this epidemic or what COVID is, what COVID must be, right? And, and I think this is uh, in itself, this cluster, this system 
of oppositions and uh, and uh, which is fostered by the infighting, especially on on social media, um, is creating something which is uh, very interesting to study uh, from an anthropological perspective because it has to do, of course, with the passion for origins. Mm-hmm. Now, the passion for origins—it's <coughs> not me who says that. It's uh, <laughs> you know there is a very long literature on this. Sure. Um, is something which is an anthropological trait which we see throughout societies, uh, which uh, further in, in in their vast majority are founded upon uh, myth origins. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so this idea of origination, uh, this idea, first of all, that the beginning of something is important or is more important than the continuation of that phenomenon. And that the beginning, the birth of something, the moment of emergence defines how this phenomenon will develop is something which is, well, it's not exclusively a part of Western thinking. Yeah. Uh, it is a much broader anthropological trait, which takes different forms and shapes in different societies. But in Western scientific uh, reasoning, let's say, is something which becomes very perplexing. Right. Uh, why would the origins be of such, if you like, <coughs> quasi-metaphysical importance for a phenomenon? Of course, the origins are important. It's very important to understand how COVID emerged. Right. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, I, as the vast majority of uh, of people who who work on epidemics, whether from the social sciences or the life sciences. Have no doubt that this is a zoonotic disease. It has emerged in, in probably in wild animals rather than domesticated animals, or possibly in farmed wild animals, which is a, a very common practice in, in China, where this mm-hmm. disease has, you know, almost certainly emerged. Uh, and it is very important to see which animal or animals uh, did this disease emerge, uh, from which animal did it spill over to humans, because of course. You know, I don't think anyone seriously uh, says that, you know, the disease spilled over from bats. If bats are, you know, where the disease emerged, there is an intermediary host. What is it? Is it raccoon dogs? Is it this? Is it that? Is it civet cats? Yeah, these are very valid scientific questions. What is not so clear is why at this moment, in the pandemic, these are the most important questions to ask. And I would put, you know, a counter question, you know, not not that this question opposes the previous questions, but since we have uh, uh, unavoidably systems uh, of funding and systems of press uh, coverage, which prioritize different scientific aspects of COVID, you know, I would think that what I'm going to talk about now should have priority over the origins uh, question. And this is the anthrop- anthropozoonotic aspect of the disease right now. The way in which the disease has spilled over from humans to wild animals, such as deer. Right. right. Yeah? And has we, we now know that it is spilling back from these animals. At least we have one uh, case where this has happened uh, in, in Canada. So... Well, if you have one case, you know, it's improbable that you, we don't have more uh, back to humans. And how uh, SARS-CoV-2 is creating what we may call deep reservoirs in wild 
animal populations across the globe without anyone seriously monitoring this. You know, the reason why no one is monitoring it is well, because, you know, to be very frank, uh, and having discussed this with people who study this phenomenon, no government and no funding body is very happy to be seen to commit money for animal studies of SARS-CoV-2 when there is a human pandemic. It's, it's the politics of funding, right? It doesn't look good for governments to commit money to deer when humans are dying. Sure. But this is a very, very short-term thinking because if SARS-CoV-2 establishes deep reservoirs across wild animal populations in the US, in Europe, in India, in you name it, doesn't matter, you know, then you know, the, the possibility of having new mutations within these populations and between populations of different animals where mutations are more likely to happen, and then new new coronaviruses emerging and spilling over into human populations is vast and would signal if this is happening, you know, I, I dare say this, uh, you know, I know it's risky, a new epidemiological era, right? An era of constantly emerging coronaviruses, right? And there is a very short window of opportunity to properly uh, try and control this. We, we're probably past that already, but at least we can try and, 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 and put the proper systems of surveillance in place to properly understand what's happening in these wild animal populations, rather than being so obsessed with the origins of this disease three or four or well, two or three years ago. You know, I think the priority is the future, not the past. And the past, you know, that particular past, well, it may help us understand the future, but, you know, the, its use is rather limited, I think, in this case, when we know that this virus, so many animals are susceptible to this virus, and it is spilling back to them. There's, there's so much in what you were just, what you were just describing, and... Um... The anthropozoonosis phenomena. One question is: do, Are there historical examples of this at scale? I mean, where you can actually see a virus moving from human host to animal, and then mutation, and then coming back into human host, or is it? It's mostly hypothesized at this point. It is, I think, hypothesized at this moment. What what we definitely have is. Uh, which is a very different story, of course, because it's a bacterium. It's the introduction of Yersinia pestis plague in the USA. Right? Right. USA did not have Yersinia pestis before 1900. It was introduced with rats uh, on uh, on boats, and then well, it didn't stay with rats. It spilled over to wild rodents. Yes, uh, and now we have endemic uh, plague amongst wild rodents in the US uh, up until the more or less the Rocky uh, the Rocky Mountains line. Now, of course, we don't have outbreaks of plague, of human plague uh, in the United States uh, all the time. We have very small outbreaks, limited outbreaks, and that has to do with very good surveillance system, very good public health um, system uh, by the CDC focusing on plague and uh, a, a good awareness in the areas where plague is endemic of what animals have it, right? But plague is, is a rather stable, it's a very, very stable pathogen, bacterium. 
you know, it's something we understand pretty well. Uh, and, and so it is this knowledge which allows us, you know, to, to, to know what to do with it. So we have campaigns, uh, public health campaigns of vaccinating, of throwing pellets of vaccination for, for different wild animals that may, where plague may be spreading, you know, at this moment, say in Colorado. So, you know, there are public health, uh, programs in or, aimed at containing this right. disease amongst wild animals. Right now, we don't have any public health programs aimed at either understanding or controlling the spread of SARS-CoV-2 among deer or any other wild animals in the US, let alone in other countries where there is no economic capacity right now to perform such studies. Do you think that this, I was about to frame a, a question making you choose one or the other. So I guess it's more like, what, what's at play here? But I mean, coming back to the earlier part of our conversation, that there's, even if policymakers, many are moving away from the idea of lab leak, it's still alive in the United States, this idea, but um, but they might not move away from the their cultural commitment, again, as we were discussing before, to the idea that this is an exotic disease. And so it, it, we must focus on the origin story because it's, it's actually culturally and politically very important that it come from Asia, that it come from China, but particularly at this moment. And so, and I'm not, and so scientists will be caught up in this because if this is the political posture and this is where the funding is coming from, it will be very hard to, to actually frame it in the ways that you've tried to just frame it as a, a, a very important public epidemiological public health issue that requires that we actually look at deer population in the United States. There's nothing exotic about that. That's the least exotic thing you could possibly imagine. Deer roaming around backyards in New Jersey as the possible source for the next uh, SARS variant. And so I don't want to go too far with that because I don't know how to prove that, but I'm fascinated by that concept. No, I think I think you're right. I, I, I read a tweet recently by one of the advocates of the Wuhan hypothesis. You know, who's a who's a very who's a great scientist. But I found the the, the tweet rather uh, problematic in that it was saying that well, wet markets or wild animal markets are like the handle in Soho. You know, in the famous Jon Snow cholera case. You know, we need to remove the handle, and this is indicative of uh, scientists. I have to say. Uh, being, you know, not willing to think, think things through in a social scientific manner. You know, the wild animal trade, wet markets are not simply a handle that can be removed. They are incredibly complex economic and social relations. You know, you cannot, you cannot ban a social relation, right? You cannot extract it like it's a rotten tooth. You know, you cannot take it away like it's a pump handle. You know, you have to work with it. First of all, you have to understand it. You know, we need ethnographies of, of wet markets. We need ethnographies of wild animal markets. And there are. Frederick Keck in, in Paris has a great project uh, on, on that. But we need, you know, many more. Uh, and we need, uh, you know, a, a much better uh, sociological understanding and economic understanding of what's happening on the ground. And once we have the data, yeah, and, and we have some sort of clear understanding of the situation, then we can start thinking about intervening, you know, in meaningful ways, not in ways that are, you know, that are going to lead to famine, 
you know, or to a black market in wild animals, which would be even more uncontrollable. And Lyle Fernley and I, well, at the very beginning of the pandemic, wrote about this, you know, how dangerous it would be to completely ban these markets. You will just drive them underground, right? And, and there the risk is much, much higher. So, you know, we need to understand that there is a thing called society. <laughs> and epidemics and pathogens emerge within social and interspecies relations, which themselves are social relations. And if we want to have an intervention in order to prevent the next pandemic, because that's the narrative that, you know, if we ban wet markets, there will be no next pandemic. Right. Well, you know, even if that were true, you know, which is very naive in my opinion, there is going to be a next pandemic no matter what. You know, we, you know this is just the order of, of nature. Um, but even if that were the case, then we need to understand what we're intervening on and in before we do, right? Um, and, uh, you know, scientists need to start thinking sociologically, ethnographically, and anthropologically. Uh, because at least the social sciences, you know, we are really trying to think or to understand how scientists reason, you know, how they use data, we, we take them seriously. It's time that they take the social sciences and the humanities seriously too. And affords meaningful collaborations. Well, we've really got our work cut out for us, don't we? I mean, I was just thinking of the, the it's a little bit of a tangent, but the um, the pandemic film Contagion, which I'm, everyone knows and, and, and how that film works as a search for origins in reverse, right? I mean, it, that, that last sequence, I don't know if you've seen the film or you know the film, but the last sequence is almost a, it's a, um, you know, it's like at the end of a great murder mystery where the clues are finally assembled only at the very end in the last 30 seconds of the film. And that's the payoff, right? That's the payoff of the film is we didn't know what was going. Ah, we, now we understand the origin and the entire rest of the story makes sense. And that narrative frame is extremely powerful to people. It's so satisfying. It's, it's where the wrong bat meets the wrong pig, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, that's the problem that uh, epidemiology or the study of epidemics needs to be radically decolonized. It needs to to get rid of the smoking gun, uh, the pathos for the smoking gun, the Sherlock Holmes uh, yeah. attributes to it, and to echo or to quote Lucas Engelmann. Um, who's done a great study about this in, in historical times in, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, it needs to really become uh, reflective, you know, epistemolo epistemologically reflective in order to understand a very uh, pervasive phenomenon in epidemiology, which Lucas Engelman has called epidemiological casuistry. Right. Working back on the basis of cases, you know, which we all know you know, uh, have a, a certain element of, of casuistry there, it, right. just in order to make everything cohere and everything come together. You know, generally speaking, anthropologists would say that things don't come together, right? Things don't make sense. You know, when you see too much sense or things coming too much yeah. together, you yeah. should be very, very suspicious of your own narrative. And there, you know, your reflexive vigilance should be alerted and heightened. Right. I think there is a, a great lack of epistemological reflexivity, uh, especially in the times of 
emergency as the one we are uh, going through now. Well, I know that you have uh, other things that you have to get to. I could keep talking to you all day. Every time I talk to you, I learn more and more. And I just want to remind folks that you've been listening to COVID calls. And the next COVID calls will be on Wednesday, March 9th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I will be talking to historian of disasters, Mark Healy. So please do join me for that. And let me once again thank my guest, Christos Linteros, for your generosity of time and ideas today. Great to be with you. Please promise to come back again. COVID calls will move to a different format, but I'll still be doing calls, and I hope we get a chance to visit again, Christos. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, it would be a pleasure. Stay healthy, everyone, and we'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Thank you.